Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm back at home, back in New York. I was uh, traveling a little bit, as people know from last week, where I showed off the dog that I had met in my travels. Shout out to London, the Yorkie. I, uh, I took a plane. Not everyone was masked. A lot of people didn't mask. How'd that make you feel? Not great. I think that the cost of wearing a mask is so low. I mean, it's uncomfortable, but I think that uh, it would be great if people just masked up, especially for the sake of others who are more immunocompromised. So I I, I masked up, but, but I don't think Biden will call for it just because uh, I think he thinks it will be electorally unpopular. So I don't think we can expect much from him on this issue until his second term, if he gets a second term. Well, if that's a cause you care about, that's a great reason to vote for 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 Biden, I guess. You know, I guess we're getting out the vote for Biden. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, while while slamming him appropriately. Yes. For doing nothing. I saw a really good TV show, a Showtime show called American Rust with Jeff Daniels. I recommend that. Uh, I saw a really bad. No, it wasn't really. It was kind of bad. I don't know why I stuck with it. It's called Still Water. It's with Matt Damon. And it's kind of based on the Amanda Knox story, but it takes place in France instead of Italy. Uh, and Abigail Breslin is in it, who was so cute in Little Miss Sunshine. Do you remember? Did you see that movie, Little Miss Sunshine? I did. Yes. She was so great in that, and then she's grown up to become such a terrible adult. Like a terrible adult, fictionally or in real yeah, life? Fictionally. Too. Well, fictionally. Uh, fictionally, she was just really unappealing, and maybe she was supposed to be unappealing, but she was just annoying. Her voice was annoying. She's not a very good actor. I wish she could have just stayed that age and been cute and a good actor for a little kid. Because I guess acting as a little kid is different from acting as an adult. Well, having been a child actor myself, as we've talked about in previous shows, I have a lot of empathy for my child actor colleagues. And look, especially if you become famous at a young age, it's really hard to make it out a stable, sane person. So anyone who can... <laughs> Have anywhere approaching a, a you know a career in a normal life after being a child star, I think is I think it's a miracle. So yeah, how did you, you know. stay so grounded? How did I stay so grounded after my uh, two toy commercials? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Starring you know, roles, yeah. You know, I couldn't have done it without without the support of my family who kept right. me grounded. When you were recognized on the streets of Vancouver. Oh my God! Yeah, left and right, left and right. It's tough. Like you go through like the roster of all the child actors you worshipped or we're into when you're younger and it's just, it's tough. It's, it's a tough rap sheet. Yeah, it really is. So I guess I should be more generous, give her some credit for stick, stick, staying in the game. You know, speaking of which, as we're speaking, he wasn't quite a child actor, but Johnny Depp got big, you know, kind of young. I think he was like maybe in his late teens when he joined my favorite show as a kid with 21 Jump Street. Oh, it's a great show. And it was filmed in Vancouver where I'm from. So oh, it's especially exciting. And now he's undergoing this trial. And I happened to, like, YouTube happened to just, like, pop it up for me today. So I watched it. Recommending it for me, too. So depressing. Yeah. So depressing to hear. It's sad, you know? Yeah. I don't, have much, I don't have much more. I don't have, I don't have many insightful things to say about it. But it's just, it's just so, you know, another reminder that all the money and fame, it doesn't, it only goes so far. There's so much pain there. Right. And I, you just feel listened to it. You feel sorry. Whatever actually happened, I don't know, because this is between two people in a relationship and there's a lot of counter accusations, but it's just, it's just sad. It's a lot of pain. Money can't buy you happiness. No, cannot. No. And that's the lesson of this week's useful idiots, everybody. Yeah. You See, we, you, yeah. Got, you got your pop culture and your <laughs> self-improvement, self-development, uh, self-care. 
So you're welcome, everyone. And it's a wrap, and we'll see you next week. Exactly. So should we get to the four basic food groups? Yes, let's do it. So for this, uh, this is obviously a really tragic week, uh, tragic few weeks. We had the Buffalo shooting and then the shooting in Texas, um, where 18 children as of now have been killed. It's tragic. It's awful. It's infuriating. And I'm just going to refer to an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweet where she dings the Democratic Party. She writes, on the day of a mass shooting and weeks after news of Roe, Democratic Party leadership rallied for a pro-NRA, anti-choice incumbent under investigation in a close primary. Robocause, fundraisers, all of it. Accountability isn't partisan. This was an utter failure of leadership. And this is a reference to Henry Cuellar, who is being challenged by Jessica Cisneros and who people like Nancy Pelosi and James Clyburn have been stumping for, even though he's anti-choice and also gets an A rating from the NRA, which is very rare for Democrats, extremely rare. Uh, AOC goes on, Congress should not be an incumbent protection racket, and sadly it is treated as such by far too many. The fact is those who fail their communities deserve to lose. They don't need rescuing from powerful leaders who state they fight for gun safety, the right to choose, and more. Texas 28 is an extremely close race. If Cuellar wins, leadership's decision to go to the mat for a pro-NRA incumbent will be the reason why. If Cisneros pulls it out, they will have mobilized against a badly needed grassroots for November and fought against a historical historic victory. And for what? The last time leadership waded in to save him, he thanked them by obstructing the party's signature legislation, paving the way for the child tax credit to collapse, and imperiling millions while taking a victory lap for it. We can't afford to reward such acts. We can do better. So there you have it. I don't even need to add to this. Basically, AOC, AOC said it all. These people have no principles and no morals and no ethics, and we know that, but sometimes they say the quiet part out loud by stumping for people who... Uh, violate the very principles they claim to not only hold dear, but they claim really distinguish them from Republicans, such as abortion and gun safety. We need to we need to have a but you know, we need a bunch of pro gun people pro gun common sense people just traveling around the country with their guns, showing people how they like guns, but they don't need whatever automatics or semi automatics that people get. Those are the only people who can reach people, I think. I think if you and I went on a tour t telling people that gun safety was needed, I don't know if we it would land the way we would need it. To no, land. I don't think that would land very well. Despite we your acting time, I mean, you would yeah. ha you have some star power. I'm not mm. going to downplay the star power true. from your, your childhood acting gigs. That's true. That's oh, true. and it's bad. actually, you're perfect because you played war. I mean, were you armed in those commercials or were you just... I was not armed, but I did play a general and also a terrorist. So, oh, so my experience with militancy is pretty pretty top notch and well rounded. Yeah, very well rounded. I, I played both sides. Wow. Yeah. Well, if you play up the general experience, if we mm -hmm. introduce you as former child general, <laughs> I think maybe you could reach some people. <laughs> I was wrong. I reversed my my former stance. Yeah, it probably wouldn't land too well. Probably wouldn't land too well. I mean, general having like progressives and liberals try to appeal to Republicans and independents like that just never goes to lover. Yeah, it's not it's not a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could learn how to shoot guns and then we could do it. Yeah, I'm good. I, I really don't want to learn how to shoot a yeah. gun. Yeah.
Well, that's now. There's no now part of me that wants to do that. Now we've lost it. We've lost whatever grip we had, whatever yeah. inroads we had through your act, through your acting experience. We've just lost. Edit that out, Wilson. I don't want people to hear Aaron <laughs> say he doesn't want to learn how to shoot a gun. <laughs> what to say? It's just awful. Yeah, well, it's also the topic of this week's Republicans suck. Where this tweet from Public Citizen says a lot. It lays out the contributions that the NRA has given to a number of Republican senators who have stood in the way of gun control laws. All right, so here it is. Senators bankrolled by the NRA. Mitt Romney, more than $13 million. Richard Burr, $6 million. Roy Blunt, $4 million. Tom Tillis, $4 million. Marco Rubio, $3 million. And I'm rounding down in all these cases. Joni Ernst, Ernst, $3 million. Josh Hawley, $1 million. Mitch McConnell, $1 million. Ted Cruz, $176,000. Some of them are speaking this weekend at a NRA conference in Houston, including former President Trump and Ted Cruz will be there. This is the kind of thing where I just, I have no words. I really don't. You know what I hate when people say, let's not politicize this as if you're cheapening the deaths of people. When anyone talks about gun control after a shooting, you're literally doing it to save lives, to prevent another shooting from happening. Yeah, allowing people to buy AR-15s is a political choice. Right. So pointing that out is not politicizing anything. It's just pointing out reality. Right. And either you, and if you support that, fine. That's your right to support giving people AR-15s after they turn, right after they turn 18, as was the case in this in this shooter's case. But it's not, I mean, that's your political stance. People have right. the right to take a different one. Yeah, don't pretend that you're not politicizing it. Like you're just honoring people's lives and mourning their deaths because what you're doing is actually creating the opportunity for more of those. And it was also two, so it was 18 children and two teachers who were also killed. I think at this point it's 19 children and really? two, two, two adults, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was watching Chris Murphy was talking in the Senate and at that point I think it was 14, so. Well, I will say this about people like Chris Murphy. It's great what they advocate at home, but meanwhile, they also advocate flooding foreign countries with weapons, whether it's the Ukraine proxy war or the Syria proxy war. So it's not an exact parallel, but right now, as we speak, all these Democrats just voted for a $40 billion bill that will flood Ukraine with more weapons, even though Ukraine is recognized to be a hub of arms trafficking, and even though the U.S. knows it can't keep track of where all these weapons go. So these weapons will even if you support the cause of arming Ukraine to defend itself against Russia, fair enough. But these weapons, on top of, I think, prolonging the proxy war, will also end up in the hands of bad people and will be used to commit crimes in the future. I think that's a pretty safe bet. So yeah. it'd be good to have some consistency applied when it comes to gun control, not just at home, but abroad as well. Right. And if you need to be convinced of what Aaron just said, just listen to our, our last week's episode with Lev Galenkin, which was really great. And um, he's an expert on this stuff as someone who comes from Ukraine. All right, so let's move on to, uh, it's hard to, I'm just gonna be honest and fully transparent. It's hard to to just segue in and out of these stories because they're so terrible, but let's move on to, isn't that weird? Um, And much lighter news. Let's go to Kingsville now, where a mom was surprised to learn just how big of an appetite her two-year-old boy has. So, so he had not one, not two, but almost three dozen hamburgers <laughs> delivered to the house. Take a look. And one thirty-one. What do you think about all this, kiddo? You gonna eat all this? You gonna share? 
His mom, Kelsey, telling us she thought Barrett was taking pictures. You know, he just kept on hitting the screen on the phone. Mm -hmm. So she was shocked when she opened the door to have this massive order delivered. But Barrett's slip of the finger gave way to a good deed. So I didn't know what to do with him. He only ate half of one. So was, um, I, I posted on a community page here in Kingsville and asked if anybody wanted some. Um, one girl came by and picked up six. Hey, get this. As part of that $90 bill, Barrett actually included a $16 tip. It's a He's good tipper. Mr. Big Spender. That's right. There That's, you go. Go, Barrett. <laughs> So at first I was a little confused when I read the headline about the two-year-old ordering uh, 31 burgers. I was like, didn't they realize on the phone, couldn't they hear that he was a toddler? I was also like, he must be a very verbal toddler to be like, give me 31 hamburgers. But I'm a dinosaur and forgot that people order food on things like DoorDash. But that's pretty impressive. Like he's pretty, that's a very precocious kid to figure out how to order 31 cheeseburgers and add a tip. Yeah, that's peak precociousness Yeah, right there. I feel like maybe if you were, if you really wanted to teach your kid a lesson, you'd have to make them eat the 31 hamburgers. Not all in one sitting, because that's child abuse, yeah. but like for over the course of a month. Yeah, and to promote responsible app use. Yeah, exactly. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, sure. That seems like a fair punishment. And um, maybe McDonald, maybe Wendy's and Burger King and... Sonic will get in the into this too and and then deliver 31 burgers to the kids house just to you know use this as a chance to promote responsible ordering. Yeah, and their product. And yeah. Their products. Yeah, it's a good opportunity. Let's yeah. flood this kid with burgers. Yeah. Let's treat this kid like Ukraine and the burgers like weapons. There we go. There we go. Coming <laughs> full circle. Yeah. All right. So for isn't that terrible? Back to Ukraine. Sorry, I can't, I can't stop talking about Ukraine. So let's look at this article that was in Forbes magazine by a columnist named John Markman. And he has good news, everybody. He has good news for the expansion of NATO that is happening now with Finland and Sweden joining. And uh, also the Senate passing $40 billion earmarked for Ukraine, most of it will go to the U.S. weapons industry. And this is what the headline says, expanded NATO will shoot billions to U.S. defense contractors. Isn't that great news, Katie? I'm so, it warms my heart right now. Yeah. My heart is warm. So let's read a little bit in the next tweet. So that's what he says, with two more countries joining NATO, quote, the real winners are American defense companies. There's an additional bonus for American defense companies because now with Europe, being in lockstep with the US, now they're gonna do away with some of their old bad habits. And this is what those bad habits were. Elected leaders, he's talking about in Europe, elected leaders spent lavishly on social safety nets while largely ignoring that the world remains a dangerous place. The creation of the European Union expedited pacifism. Images of the destruction of Ukraine changed everything. So isn't that great, Katie? Because we don't have a proxy war in Ukraine, things like pacifism, and spending on social safety nets, that's that's out. That's the way of the past. The new, uh, the future is making American defense companies the winners. That's what is such a wonderful thing. I like that. I'm future, I'm looking forward to that future. Yeah, so exciting. So yeah, in all seriousness, that's actually terrible. <laughs> but this is what happens when you have war. It promotes war profiteering. And that's why the real winners of the Ukraine war 
are not Ukrainians or Russians or anybody else. It's American defense companies, the real, the people who really matter. That truly is terrible. Slava Raytheon. Slava Raytheon. Well, we also have a, uh, a stone moment, as people know, uh, fans of the show know, stone moments originated during the 2020 primaries. We would do stone moments. And then, of course, uh, during the general, it became uh, Joe Biden uh, domain. And to be honest, it was mostly Joe Biden's domain. Even during the primaries, he had the most stone moments. So now we have a stone moment for you from Nina Jankowitz, friend of show Nina Jankowitz, who we'd love to have come on the show and do some singing or smearing or Nazi uh, whitewashing, whichever. This is the type of stuff that now Nina can get back to now that she's been fired. Ever since I was a baby, I have had one dream in mind. And each Christmas, I think maybe it will finally come true. It's a simple wish that everyone has had from time to time. So I know you'll understand me when I share my dream with you. I want to be rich, famous, and powerful. Step on all my enemies and never do a thing. I want to be rich, famous, and powerful. So all I have to do in life is sit around and sing. I don't want to work, struggle, or compromise. When I set a goal, I want to reach it right away. Because paying your dues, that's just for other guys. As for me, I want what I want. I don't want to audition. I don't want to take class. I want to be discovered while I'm sitting on my ass. I should not have to struggle. I should not have to sweat. I tried that for 10 minutes once and look, what did I get? I'm still not rich, famous, or powerful. That's kind of revealing, I think. It's clear that she has some talent and she has a good voice. She's very theatrical. And she has a good stage presence. And so it's like watching that, I almost, and she's doing a satirical song, which also might actually have some resonance for her. But regardless, I mean, certainly wanting to police people and take away their speech does show that there is a little bit of truth for her in that character's message there in that song. But still, it's like watching that, I feel kind of like it's too bad that she didn't pursue this more that she kind of got turned you know like careened into taking this like disinformation police path because you can see there there's real joy in what she does that's her real passion is to sing and perform and she's and she's got she's got some and she's got some talent she does so how she then got veered into like being an operative for shady government funded organizations to basically enforce narrative discipline it's too bad yeah, it is. But, you know, the silver lining is now she can get back to that now that she's been fired. Yeah, but I think she wants to be powerful. <laughs> and so I don't think she's going to let go. I see. You mean um, not just within the realm of uh, musical theater, but within the, the other realm, the political world. Yeah, and she's already in there. So I, I think she's already, and I think now, obviously, she'll want to maybe take revenge on her enemies who got right. her ousted. Yeah, so right. I don't think we've seen the last of Nina Jankowitz, but yeah. I have to say, I appreciate her. Ta- I think she's genuine musical theater talent. Not to say that that kind of style is for me, but take it for what it is. It's she's talented. She is. Yeah. And she does want to step, but, but here, I, Lev Golinkin, who helped expose her disinformation 
she may consider him an enemy. So I want Lev to be very cognizant of the fact that she says she wants to step on all my enemies and never do a thing. <laughs> so look out, Lev. Be careful, she, yeah. Lev. Yeah, and we should look out too. I mean, we've been right, very critical of her. Yeah, and we platform Lev, and we've been critical of her. So yeah. we got to look over our shoulder because yeah. we could have a, what what would she do to us? She would perform in front of our doorstep or something? Hey, all night. I'd rather her do that <laughs> than try to like get me banned from Twitter, which yeah. I could see her doing. So yeah. that's why I encourage her to pursue her genuine <laughs> talent right, yeah. as a performance artist. Right. I, th I think the world would be a much better place. Yeah, let, let, let Michael Chertoff ban us from Twitter. <laughs>
what can we do to, as parents, to protect our children um, from gun violence? Uh, and the answer is nothing. There's actually nothing we can do. Um, we could, I guess, homeschool our kids, pull them out of school altogether, but nowhere's really safe. I mean, festivals get shot up, public places get shot up, churches get shot up. Um, really, the only thing that a parent can do in America, if they are concerned about uh, their child succumbing to gun violence, like you know, 19 families are dealing with in Texas, really the only solution is to uh, move out of the country, is to immigrate to Canada, to be in a way a, a refugee from the violence of this country. Uh, so I think really the, um, the collective mood right now among everyone, uh, not just parents, but I think there is an overall uh, collective hopelessness and collective helplessness. Nobody really believes that uh, anything is going to change. Um, and we know that at the state level, and we could get into whether or not that would even do anything. Um, I think there's the recognition that the only thing that's gonna happen in Washington is both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are going to raise a lot of money, sending out a lot of fundraising emails to protect guns or to posture that they're going to somehow implement some modicum of, of gun control. So it'll in Washington, it'll be a, a fundraising moment for the two respective political parties. But I think there's an under intense consciousness right now among people in this country that uh, this is the way it is and there's really no hope uh, in it changing. And what are some of the things that could be done? I mean, you mentioned that there could be changes at the state level, but you're not sure how much of an impact that would have. Look, I mean, there's so many things that could probably help mitigate some level of, of risk here. What makes America unique in its uh, expression of violence in this way is so many different factors. I mean, the history, which we can talk about, the history of this country being based on extreme violence. And of course, we can't uh, hide from our past. And of course, every element of our present is tied to that past, the massacre of indigenous communities. Really, the you know, as Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz writes in her book, Loaded, about gun laws in America, the very first gun laws in America were that everyone was required to carry a gun because exterminating the indigenous people was a collective group effort. And so if you're going to lead your house, it was the law that you had to have a gun on you so you could participate in that killing. And so, of course, that it's deeply in the DNA of American culture and American society coming from an era of settler colonialism through the use of guns to enforce apartheid and Jim Crow terrorism on millions of people, a major sector of the US population, uh, emerging into the era of a territorial empire where the US is waging war all around the globe, killing millions and millions of people abroad. Of course, this externalized violence is always expressed at home. I mean, people think of uh, ancient Rome and think, you know, what kind of sick society for fun watched people get ripped apart by lions and gladiators and things like that? Well, it was uh, the externalized violence uh, being represented inward. I mean, the whole Rome was just a brutally violent empire that used extreme terror and violence to subjugate larger and larger sums of people. And of course, that was expressed in the culture at home. And America grapples with that same exact external violence and historical violence. Uh, but of course, there's so many other things, the levels of inequality, lack of mental health, the extreme level of alienation in this country, uh, the lack of community, um, all the things that would go a very long way into uh, stopping these expressions of mass violence that we see. But when we think about uh, solutions, really, and, and really, I wish I had, I, I usually try to, to come into these things with some kind of optimism and hope, but 
that's just really not what I'm uh, feeling right now. When we think about uh, the Democrats right now are saying, how can we pass some kind of legislation that will help, right? Well, the Democrats insist we need a supermajority to do that because this GOP will stonewall. So the only way that we can get anything passed is if we have a blowout election where we win the White House, we win the Senate, we win the House with a filibuster proof supermajority. Um, that does not happen very often. In fact, that's only happened about like two or three times in the past century. And they only happened when there was times of great social upheaval, the Great Depression and the labor fight back. There were uh, there was a Democratic supermajority. Uh, the civil rights era, 1960 war and the and upsurge around the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. That's when the Democrats had a supermajority. And the only other time was as a result of the mass anti-Bush, anti-Iraq war movement that brought Obama into power. And so he had uh, you know a, a majority that he could do some stuff with. For, for a couple of years. And so we're expected to wait for this kind of conversion of both a, a dramatic mass upsurge that causes the Democrats to be able to take power in a mass way. But then once they're in power, there needs to be some dramatic massacre like the one we saw today to move them into action because they've been in power with the supermajority or be, been able to pass this kind of legislation and they haven't done it because there was no crisis that was forcing them to do it or struggle like we saw after the Parkland massacre. Uh, that would kind of force them to do it when they are able to. So we're expected to say, well, this is this is just the way the government works. We got to wait until there's enough people in. And it just is completely unrealistic anyway, because the, the amount of gerrymandering and voter suppression and all the things designed to keep a fringe right wing group in power in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's completely un undemocratic, completely rigged. And so it, it's designed so that there is this kind of equal balance between the Democrats and Republicans that creates this so-called uh, deadlock there. Um, but let's really, I think really it gets down to, of course, there's all these different reforms that could be made, and hopefully some do, that will help curb these incidents of, of gun violence. I mean, the existence of assault rifles in this country, the proliferation of them, and there are many millions. I mean, I think the statistic is there's like seven for every individual in America, seven guns for every individual in America. The proliferation of assault weapons is really an abomination. I mean, an assault rifle has only one function, and that's to kill human beings. You don't use assault rifles for hunting. You don't use it for anything. Its entire purpose is to kill a large number of human beings in a small amount of time. Um, you know, bombs, you can't go out and buy explosives that can kill a large number of people in a small amount of time. You can squeeze off a 30-round magazine from an AR-15 in 10 seconds, and that's just a 30-round magazine. You can get 200 round magazines if you want in most states. Um, a bomb, you know, explosives are illegal because of their capacity to inflict really the same exact amount of killing. And so, you know, let's think of this, the, the amount of assault rifles in this country, obviously in all of these massacres that we're talking about, I mean, like all of them, it's, it's AR-15s, it's assault rifles that are used in them from Tree of Life to Aurora. I mean, there's, there's so many, it's all, it's all the same weapon. Um, so the proliferation of assault rifles obviously is a massive problem here in America and is the reason that so many people are able to be killed when these incidents do happen. So is it so a lot of people are calling for a federal ban on assault weapons. And yes, I, if every assault weapon disappeared off the streets today, that would be a great accomplishment. And I would love if that happened. I hate that these things exist in the country. But let's look at that realistically. I mean, that could happen one or two, one of two ways. Let's say the US government issues a federal ban on assault rifles and they carry it out by saying no more sales of assault rifles. Sales have ended. You cannot legally sell assault rifles anymore. 
we're going to ask people to turn in their assault weapons if they own them, but there's going to be no government operation to go into people's homes and take those assault rifles, except in, you know, probably uh, where it would happen is Black and Latino communities, they would probably go in there and make sure people didn't have those guns. So if that happened, what we would end up with is a complete imbalance where the fascist right wing that has been stockpiling assault weapons and ammunition and all of this gear, uh, there would be a federal ban for everyone else, but these people would maintain these huge stockpiles. And then we'd have a situation where a very dangerous, real uh, political far right wing in this country that is heavily armed uh, would then all of a sudden have all of the weapons and uh, the police, of course, and then nobody else would. But here's the other possibility if there was a federal ban on assault rifles. And this is really why I feel that this is never actually going to happen. Because the United States ruling class and Washington is very aware of the fact that we are in a very unstable and fragile system here. I mean, the whole point of the elections is to show, oh, we're a stable capitalist liberal democracy. We have this great stability, the rest of the world. You don't have to worry about us collapsing because look how we all come together as a nation and have a peaceful transfer of power. I think that the Washington is well aware that if they were to implement a federal ban on assault rifles, that did uh, equally uh, get assault weapons off the street. How many, not just individuals, but how many communities across America in right-wing areas would, uh, would take up arms to prevent federal forces from coming in and taking their, I think they would be very scared of an actual low level or even larger level civil war type situation breaking out if they implemented these kinds of things. And I guess anyone who's been uh, looking at world events for the past couple of years, past four years, past six years, can say that's a very believable scenario. If the fa the right wing fantasy of this tyrannical government coming in your house to take your guns were to come true, uh, we could guess some amount of them uh, would resort to, to mass violence as a solution to that. And so my point is, is that uh, yes, there are a wide, wide range of things that would be meaningful reforms, which we should support, mental health care, reduction of poverty, different restrictions on getting firearms and so forth. But we're in a situation where you know that basically none of these things are going to happen. And even if a lot of them were to happen, it does not solve the deeper sickness in our society, the deeper cultural problems of our society, and would not address the political reality of a heavily armed right-wing base of the population that presents a real danger. My point is that US capitalism is a failed system. There really is no real answer under these current conditions. This is this is what it is. This uh, American capitalist experiment that's been going on for a few hundred years, this is what it produces. And there's no way around that. And I, I, I just hope that this moment of despair and helplessness that so many people are feeling is one that radicalizes them against capitalism as a whole. I mean, because this is not something that can be solved with any piece of legislation. It's it's looking for solutions in a in a basket case system. And and sadly that's a that's a dead end. That's there needs to be some kind of sweeping mass and systems change for us to see any kind of um healing of of the culture that we have here in our situation of daily violence. What do you make of what we know of the police response so far? There's videos of taken at the time of the massacre of parents outside the school pleading with police to intervene and there's been criticism that they didn't do enough while the shooting was going on. I'm worried about drawing conclusions before we, there's a full investigation and we know all the details, but what do you make so far based on the information we have? 
the more that comes out, the worse it gets. And so I also was was hesitant to um, assume that the police acted with the extreme cowardice that they did. Uh, but the more that comes out, uh, actually, that it gets far, far worse. What we do know for a fact, and this is from the police themselves, is that three armed officers failed to stop him from going in the school who saw him outside the school. Three armed officers saw someone with uh, an AR-15 and what they believed to be body armor, which it was not body armor. Uh, they failed to stop him from going into the school. Uh, he was able to go and get into a classroom, which the police then uh, surrounded. And that classroom was where everyone was killed. Um, initially, it seemed that they, they, he, they went in the school and the police were scared to go in. They said he locked the door. Cops kick down doors all the time. And, and it appears that there were windows to this classroom. They didn't try to breach the room. They waited for backup, is what they said. And they waited over an hour for backup before they breached the room. The hall the while, they could hear gunshots, screaming. They knew what was happening in that room. And I was thinking, well, if you got three cops with nine millimeter pistols, they probably think, oh, if I breach this door, this guy with the AR-15 is going to mow us all down and it's going to be a suicide mission. You still should do it, even if it's a suicide mission. Um, but I thought maybe that was the calculation. Now that video has come out, the school was swarming with police officers outside the school, not inside. The outside of the school was swarming with police officers with AR-15s, with heavily decked out assault rifles. The police that showed up soon, soon after the active shooter uh, situation was, was announced and called over the radio, all of them had a, more firepower than the gunman that was in the room. And not, and instead of, and we know that they could go in the school. You know why? Because several cops, and this is according to the police department, several cops went in the school to get their own children um, and did not get other children. They went in on their own to get their own children that were in the school. And then for the, about an hour, while the gunman was in the room with those kids trapped in the room with him, killing them the entire time, them on the floor bleeding the entire time, all of these cops that were decked out with assault rifles and body armor and everything they need in a, in a heavy war zone, they were outside fighting with the parents, pointing tasers at the parents, uh, throwing parents on the ground and subduing them because the parents were angry that they were not doing anything. And their excuse is they had to wait for the tactical breach team so that the, the special operations people could come in and do a proper stack on the door and clear the room like they trained to and shoot houses all day uh, to make themselves feel cool. But for that massive amount of time, children were bleeding on the floor who could have been saved and that gunman was killing more people. Um, and there's even reports that the police were outside the windows of the classroom that the children were in, breaking the windows of the classroom, hoping that some kids would, nine-year-olds would just run through gunfire and dive out the window and save themselves. Uh, I haven't heard any reports of police firing in the windows to try to kill the gunman or trying to breach the, the classroom uh, from the windows and definitely were not trying to breach it from the door, which they had the equipment uh, to do. And when you look at the video of these mostly white police officers decked out with all this gear and, and working class Latino families in a struggle with them, I mean, if you've been to... Uh, neighborhoods in America that are non-white neighborhoods in America, this is the dynamic you see. You see white police officers in a highly antagonistic relationship 
with the community that they police. This is why there's so many police killings in black and Latino and native communities, because you have white cops who have no connection or affinity to the community that they're policing, uh, and they treat them with complete disrespect and brutality that entire time. So when you see outside this dynamic that you know is in American cities all across the country, from urban areas to rural areas in the South and the Midwest, uh, places like Ferguson, I mean, when you know that, you, you have to wonder, did the police not run in that building uh, trying to rescue those kids uh, because of a level of racism, because they felt um, that these people that they police all the time and arrest their dads and arrest their brothers um, and pull over in, in stupid traffic stops, um, did they feel that their skin wasn't really worth it to risk their lives in a, in a shootout with someone with equal firearms or less firepower than they had um, because they just didn't feel that it was uh, that worth it and they would just wait for the professionals to come in. I mean, what it takes to be hearing, imagining what they would be hearing going on in that side inside that school and the ability to stand outside with all of these weapons that they train with all of the time and take pictures of themselves wearing all the time. I mean, imagine the level of, uh, of sickness, whether it's, it's racism, whether it's cowardice, whatever it is, what it took to not just not act, not enter the school in any way whatsoever, um, but to treat the parents with uh, such hostility and such disregard. Uh, it's, it's really sick. And I think the more that comes out, the more disturbing it gets. And so I think that that will be, um, unfortunately, uh, a, in a way they were accomplices to the mass shooter. And I would say the number of dead uh, was aided by the police um, in, this, in this tragedy. I just want to be careful because we're only speaking two days after the massacre. And so it's possible that more information that will come out that might change our picture of it. But if what you say stands up, it's just makes this it's unbelievable that that narrative that you lay out. It's 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 it, you know, you just don't want to believe it, that that's what happened because it's so it makes this horrific thing all the more horrific. It's, it's unbelievable. Um but yes, and there are videos, as you talked about, of parents being subdued outside the school by police. And we don't know exactly what time that was. It was I don't know exactly what time that was, what point mm -hmm. in the attack that was. But that is a visual that was put out there of parents being subdued by police outside. That the was, um, yeah, actually, the timestamp on that video is about 1250. The shooter was killed at 106. And so we know for at least 15 minutes before they decided to breach the room. And when there was gunfire happening in the classroom, the shooter was still shooting at this time in the classroom. We know that there were armed police with assault rifles, body armor, everything they could possibly need for at least 15 minutes before they tried breaching the room. But I believe there's other videos that show they were there much sooner with that kind of equipment. They waited to breach until like the border patrol special weapons and tactics guys came or something like that. But and that's, who killed the, that's who killed the shooter is the border patrol. It is. Once they moved all the kids out of the school, evacuated them after the shooter was dead and for parents to go get their children, they had to go to this, uh, the civic center and it was border patrol that was carrying out uh, the free people come checking in to, to get their kids. And so just imagine the level of intimidation. I mean, how many undocumented parents had to go through the, the fear of uh, ICE, you know, checking their residential status so they could go and see um, if their child was still alive. And so, uh, and, and also that that dynamic of this this level of, of border patrol in this community would, would probably speak to the level of, of police in action. I mean, if it's that kind of community where not only are you dealing with this police force 
that as police forces all over the country, we know they are extremely abusive and racist towards the populations they police. Add border patrol on top of that, maybe you can get a kind of glimpse of the of the social conditions that existed in the context of the police not going. What do you make of the proposals we're getting, such as uh, this one? Let's play a clip. This was the lieutenant governor of Texas speaking on Fox News, and he proposed that from now on, schools like this one should have one door, one heavily armed guarded door for everyone to enter and exit the building. There are lots of short things that we can do and we must do, and we've done a lot in Texas, but obviously we must do more. You know, hardened schools. There should be one entrance in and one entrance out in all of our elementary and all of our middle schools. They're small enough to do that. There should be only one way in, and that should be a well-protected uh, entrance in. We already have a program where we allow any teacher in school in the district that wants to be armed to be armed. We train them. Uh, it's up to the schools. We leave that optional. We have metal detectors at schools. If those schools make that decision, and we've funded that, we put in 100 millions. We put in uh, mental health issues. But I go back to we can do all of these things. We got to get to the base root of this. What's causing these young men in America to get a gun, either legally or illegally, to go into a school and murder children in cold blood? You know, honestly, it probably would work. Um, it would also work if you build like a giant moat with right. like alligators in the moat around the school and you actually have like a drawbridge and you can only get in if the, the drawbridge and down and then you have uh, guards that decide if we could just lower the drawbridge or not. Um, that's a, also a very effective way. You know, I mean, I, uh, of course, the right wing for fires to spread very well. I'm not sure <laughs> that would pass fire code to have one entrance and exit. Right. I mean, uh, you know, like watching a lot of Fox with after this shooting, it's of course, the, the real victim is the gun. I mean, why would people blame this gun for what happened. Obviously, it's the lack of enough locked doors and things like that. Um, and and it also just speaks to the how normalized this is in this country, um, because there was a massacre just a week prior that's already completely overshadowed by this one. Another horrific massacre in Buffalo, where ten people were killed by a white supremacist, and uh, of course, no doubt spurred on by everyone who fans the flames of racism in this country, whether they're directly saying go out and and kill people or not. I mean this. This, uh, this fueling of this other thing of racism that also is responsible for so many mass shootings in this country. Uh, and then of course, you know, that same network after uh, there's this other horrific uh, act that there's no way to um, explain why it happened other than, oh, maybe there is doors and really this can't really be about the gun. You know, Texas uh, had just lowered its age to buy AR-15s from 21 to 18. I mean, it Governor Abbott had just changed the rule so that that kid who went in to shoot it up could legally buy uh, an AR-15. And so for the host to go on and say, yeah, I have all these people buying guns, whether illegally or illegally, it's, yeah, it's, it was a, it was a legal purchase. Um, but like I said, I mean, so people realize he was 18. Yeah. And it's just, of course, all these different solutions are going to get thrown around. Um, and all these different solutions that are proposed probably would do something to help a little bit. Um, but the reality is uh, at its core, this is just a manifestation of American society as a whole. And I hope there are reforms that come out of this. I have no confidence that there is going to be, but I think people have finally understood that no level of reforms can really cure uh, the rot that's at the, at the middle of all this. If Republicans were willing to ban the purchase of AR-15s, I mean, I'd give them one door for a school. That'd be a fair trade. Sure. There you go. What is the connection 
between, as a veteran, could you speak to the connection between the military industrial complex and, and military culturally and gun violence? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. Very, very powerful. Yeah. Really appreciate Mike's insight. And for anyone who's not familiar, go check out The Empire Files. It's such a great show. And yes. their film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, is one of the best documentaries yeah. I've seen. It's so horrific and powerful. And speaking of violence, it's such a explosive look at the violence that U.S. taxpayers fund in Gaza, where yeah. you know paying for the weapons that are used to kill Palestinian protesters, in this case in Gaza, unarmed just marching for their freedom and they're gunned down. And Mike and Abby made this film with on the ground footage, just right there on the ground, showing you how it happened. And it's, and comparing it to how it was distorted in the U S media. So that's a great film to check out if you haven't seen it. Yeah. I'm excited about all their forthcoming work too. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you guys. See you next week. Make sure you subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. This week's extended interview with Mike is really good. You'll hear Mike talk about among other things, confronting George W. Bush, and Katie, I, I considered only putting the Nina Jankowitz song segment into the free version so that we could have said and subscribed to not have to watch Nina's song this week. <laughs> oh, that's kind of funny, yeah. And see you next week. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 